Okay, sorry for technical reasons, we're starting a little late. So let's do the sponsorships. Um, number one, first of all, Mazel Tov to Michael and Jamie Benmela. And uh, we're dedicating this class for the health and success of their new baby girl, Benmela. And um, anonymous for the recovery of Moshe Benchana. Anonymous with gratitude to Hashem that Yosef Ben Maro is cancer free and for the Rafur Shlema of Kamran Shmuel Chaim Ben Akhtar and for the Rafur Shlema of Chaya Bat Chana, Menachem Mendel Ben Sarah Batya and the Rofega Bat Rezel. Okay, so um, let's jump right into this because we are starting a little late and we don't have a clock here so if I can ask one of you people to keep an eye on me. Okay, because that clock over there is not working. Okay, so as always, we start with a modern-day issue. The power of the wicked. Why do the righteous have to live under the dominance of the wicked who prosper? For 210 years, the Jewish people lived under the dominance and suffering of Pharaoh's cruelty. And throughout history unto present, again and again, we find good people living under the dominance and often persecution of the wicked who prosper. Why? Why do the wicked have power over the good? So that is the question here. Yes, you can look at it from a perspective that we are in exile and why we are in exile is because of our sins and unwillingness to surrender to God and to change our ways. However, there are ways for God to have us experience exile without giving power to the wicked over the good. For example, you know, we've uh, experienced, unfortunately, Hashem should protect us uh, from here on, with natural disasters. And that has nothing to do with the wicked prospering and having dominance and perse persecuting the good. So why is it? And the real question is, how is that possible? More importantly, according to Kabbalah, the fact that we have sinned wouldn't give evil power over good and wouldn't give power to the wicked over God's chosen people. Okay? Goodness and holiness comes from a higher source and therefore how the question isn't why the question actually here is how that's what Kabbalah wants to know how did it come to be that darkness has power over light okay how much more so when we aren't talking about the aspect of exile but an aspect of our serving God how is it possible that the wicked dominate us in this area okay so this lecture is based on a mimer um, that the Rebbe delivered in 1965 on this Shabbos in which the Rebbe explores how Pharaoh was able to chase us out of exile into unto Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. You want to say that while we were in exile, he had power over us? Okay, this Kabbalah trying to explain that. The punishment, the connection with sin, which in itself still needs some explanation. But how much more so when it isn't about exile, and as we're about to see. So what's the opening verse of this week's Torah portion? Vayihi b'shalach paro and Pharaoh sent the nation. Our sages tell us that when he sent us, he sent us forcefully. We didn't want to go so quickly. Yeah, I mean, obviously we didn't want to go so quickly, uh, just from the aspect of um, <laughs> we couldn't finish our, our breads. And until this very day, we're paying about $19 a pound <laughs> of matzah. <laughs> so obviously we would have rather just go ahead and finish our baking and not have to deal with matzah. So we're told that we're forced out, that we had no time even to prepare ourselves. What does it mean Pharaoh forced us out of exile? What does it mean that Pharaoh forced us into the Sinai desert so that we can get to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah? That shouldn't be part of Pharaoh's job. How much more so when we're talking about after the 10 plagues and after all the miracles where the evil power of Pharaoh was broken, at this point, if the Jews would have said, no, we're not leaving, we, we want to... What power did he have to force us at this point? He was on his knees. He was running around looking for Moses. Take your people and go. So what does it mean that he was able to force us? Okay? And, and God actually told us that. In the beginning of the story, God told Moses that against Israel's will, he will drive them out and they will not have time to make provisions for themselves. And so he says, and the Egyptians pressed the people strongly. That's what our sages learn out of that verse. Press them strongly. 
Okay? Thus our opening question. Now you understand where the opening question came from. Not only in exile, but even in our redemption, Pharaoh had power over us. He was able to make us do things by force. Why so? Okay? So that's the question. Now, here's an interesting thing. I want to take you to another verse in this week's Torah portion. After the Jewish people left Egypt, and they were now stuck between the Sea of Reeds and the oncoming army of Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh says, let's go, what, what do we do? Let's go get, bring them back, right? So it says, Uparoi Hikriv. In the correct grammar, Hikriv, right. Hikriv doesn't mean that he came close. It means he made someone else come close. Thus our sages learn out, Uparoi Hikriv, Pharaoh brought the Jewish people, not that he got close to the Jewish people, he brought the Jewish people close to God. And thus our sages say, He brought close the heart of the Jewish people to Hashem. A very clear statement here that Pharaoh is forcing us to be good people, to get close to Hashem. How does Pharaoh have that power? On top of that, I want to talk to you a little bit, <coughs> so sorry, I want to talk to you a little bit about freedom of choice. Where does freedom of choice come from? So there's an interesting teaching in Kabbalah that says that in Genesis, after the eating of the tree of knowledge, when God said that now they have become one of us. What does it mean one of us? Hashem was basically saying they've become like me. And the sages, according to Kabbalah, say that what that means is that they now have freedom of choice. Let's talk about this. Freedom of choice. Anything that has a source cannot have freedom of choice because it is always reacting to its source. On top of that, when the source is not just the source of bringing it into its existence, but the source of its continuous vitality, then it is dependent upon its source. Right? The ray of light that comes from the source of light can't decide it's not going to shine, or can't decide it's going to change colors, or can't decide that it's going to become dark. Because the offspring is dependent upon its source, and thus whatever the source is doing is causing a reaction. And needless to say, that the offspring cannot have what its source doesn't have. Thus the question in Kabbalah is, where does freedom of choice come from if everything has a source? If the infinite light is the source, then it can only do what the infinite light has. And if the infinite light can't do evil, then, then the offspring can't do evil. How does that come? Okay? So that's the Kabbalistic question. And thus the Kabbalah learns in that verse that they have become one of us, that that is the answer to the question. And explains as follows. Because we have within us the godly soul, which I quote to you, chapter 2 of Tanya, is truly a piece of God. In other words, all other creatures, every other creation other than us, it says, and God said. Only by us does it say, and God breathed within. And the Zohar says, Man de nafach nafach. He who breathes out hard, breathes out from his interior. Thus speech is exterior, and breathing out is interior. Thus the soul of, of us, the godly soul, is truly a piece of God. Now let's talk about this. Everything has a source. Even in the infinite light has a source. And it goes higher and higher and higher. What is the only existence that doesn't have a source? God. Thus, only because we have a piece of God within us, do we have that power of freedom of choice. Let's take it a step further. There is no creature, terrestrial or celestial, can, that, that can believe that it doesn't have a creator. Just like no one would dream of that there's a painter without an artist. 
logic in the, in the cause and effect doesn't allow for the mind to come up with such a theory. How can something exist of itself? Only the physical human can embrace atheism. Why? With our higher intellect, we should be the one and only that cannot embrace atheism. The fact that I exist tells me that there's parents. So take that further. The fact that creation exists tells me that there's a creator. The answer is that because we have within us a piece of God, and God truly exists from self and has no source, thus we can, we have such freedom of choice that we can think the unthinkable that we have no source. Because within us there's a piece of us that has no source. Thus it's within our radar screen to be able to have such a thought. Thus we're saying that freedom of choice comes from the fact that we have a piece of God within us. Now there's different teachings. Many teachings says that freedom of choice does not exist anywhere but in to serve God or not to serve God. You think about it. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't choose not to be born. Ultimately speaking, with a little bit of faith, you know, you didn't choose who you married. Everything is hashkachah pratit, bashert. Thus there are those that say that greater than everything, freedom of choice exists only in good and evil. To do good or to do evil. If that be the case, Kabbalah definitely wants to know how could it be that Pharaoh forced us to go into the Sinai desert to face God and receive the Torah. That's definitely an area where no one should be able to force us because ultimately that is from the peace of God within us who can force and have power over the peace of God within us. So this question of how evil can impose upon us or force upon us whether we can keep Shabbos or not keep Shabbos, keep kosher or not keep kosher, do this or do that, that doesn't make sense. Kabbalistically speaking, that means that there's something that has power even over that ultimate peace of God. How is that possible? So far so good? Okay. Now that we got this, let the lecture begin. So let's talk about the list of Kabbalistic concepts, mystical concepts we're going to talk about, and then we're going to come back to the practical question in our life. How is it that we can have oppressors get in the way of our relationship with God? Okay? So here's the list. Number one, the husk and the fruit. Okay? Number two, an elevated pharaoh. Number three, <coughs> sorry, a holy Egypt. Number four, the Hardufni tree. Okay, let's talk about this. Let's have the amazement of Hasidus start unfolding here. The husk and the fruit. The Zohar teaches us the following. Higdim haklipolapri. The husk, the peel, comes before the fruit. First the husk, the peel, and then inside <coughs> comes the fruit. Now, husk is a terminology used in Kabbalah and Hasidus for evil. Why? Because in Kabbalah and Hasidus, everything is soul, body, light, vessel. The definition of holy or unholy is whether the vessel covering the light is transparent or opaque. If, the transp if it's opaque, it's not allowing the godly spark within it to shine through and affect it. Then we're talking about klipa, the husk is what we're really seeing, not the pre, not the fruit within it. Thus, the klipa is the husk, the evil, the impurity is the husk, the arrogance, the egocentrism, and the light is the fruit. Now, when we say in a Kabbalah language, one came first, first doesn't mean on the clock. First means higher. Thus, you're hearing the Zohar and Parsha Mishpatim say, that klipa is higher and more powerful than light. So here already we're hearing that the, the uh, evil, the impurity comes from a higher source and therefore is more powerful than light. If this be the case, then there's no question how Pharaoh was able to oppress the Jews because the husk is higher than the fruit. But let's understand this. By the way, just a little time out. 
um, not in my notes, but just that you know, this is how Kabbalah explains the food chain. In Kabbalah, the food chain is not the way we live as humans. As humans, right, the mighty eat up the weak. In Kabbalah, that can't happen. You can't have higher living off lower. It's got to be the opposite, lower living off higher. And yet over here, it's the opposite. The human lives off the animal, lives off the vegetation, lives off the ground. It doesn't make sense according to Kabbalah. And the answer is what we just said. Because the husk comes higher, thus the fruit can live off the husk. Thus the human can live off the animal, which can live off the plant, which can live off the minerals of the earth. But we still need to understand this. What exactly are we saying here? We're saying that impurity is higher than purity. Evil is higher than holiness. The klipa is higher than the fruit. It doesn't make sense. So let's talk about this. To understand this, we're going to go into a different conversation. If you look in Genesis, the second verse of the Torah, it says what took place before God started creating the, the world, right? It says, uh, it's, before it says, and God said, let there be light, what does it say? It tells us that before that, there was tohu uvohu v'choshech. Tohu means chaos. Vohu is astonishing emptiness. Choshech is darkness. I want to just focus on Tohu. Why so? Because in Kabbalah, Tohu is a world. It's a spiritual world that pre-existed our world. So when the sages say that God created the worlds and destroyed them before he got to this world, God doesn't make mistakes. Oops, all right, let's try again. So what does it mean he created a world, he destroyed it? And uh, Rizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the famous Kabbalist, he says that there was a world of Tohu. Tohu shattered. Its sparks fell into Tikkun. Now let's start translating those words. Tohu is chaos. Tikkun is orderliness. What causes the world of Tohu to be chaos? Chaos happens when you don't contract the light to be able to be sustainable in the vessel. When you have too much light going into too thin of a vessel, you're creating instability. When you create instability, that's chaotic. Okay? So thus we're hearing now that Tohu is truly mightier and higher than Tikkun. Because it was infinite light. And because it was infinite light, its vessels were not capable of being opaque and thick. And thus when you make that shidduch, there's chaos, instability, it shattered, and the shattered pieces of the vessels fell into this world. This world is called tikkun. The word tikkun means orderly. Litaken, to fix, orderliness. What makes this world orderly? What makes it orderly is that the light was contracted and contracted and contracted and the vessel became thicker and coarser and thus the shidduch between the light and the vessel is stable. So even though Tohu is more powerful than Tikkun, Tikkun has endurance and Tohu, its chaos, caused it to shatter. So far so good? Now that we understand that, hello. Now that we understand that, let's understand what happened to those shattered pieces. Those shattered pieces fell into this world. But being that these shattered pieces come from the infinite, the chaotic, the intensely passionate, they fell very low. They didn't manifest themselves within the average, they manifest themselves within those who are infamously outstanding. Thus Isaac loved Esau because Esau was Tohu. And Isaac saw within him the potential of infinite intensity and passion and commitment to God. However, Isaac was looking through spiritual eyes. 
What he failed to see was that Esau, when he fell, manifested himself into a murderer, a rapist, and a thief. Because the one thing Tohu is not going to be is normal, orderly, either above or below. Rebecca, who was more in touch with the physical reality, she didn't see how it should be just, she saw how it is, she understood that dominance needs to be given to Jacob because Esau is not okay. That same concept exists with Pharaoh. Pharaoh and Egypt, and Egypt represent Tohu. Thus in Zohar it says that Moses was afraid of, of, of Pharaoh to the point where last week God said, Bo'el Paro, come to Paro, and you don't see in the verse any message. And our sages tell us that God was telling Moses, you need to face your fear. This is not about anything else. Why was Moses afraid of Pharaoh? Because the word Paro in the Zohar comes from the word Ispariun. And the words of the Zohar is, Minne Ispariun komine nehurun. From it shines forth all forms of light. Thus we see that Pharaoh that fell down here and became so mighty, it's because in his source, he was high up in Tohu. And thus there was a fallen spark of such powerful chaos within him. And thus he was a supreme world leader. And thus he had power over the Jews. And thus Moses was afraid of him. Until Hashem said, Bo el paro, come to Pharaoh. What do you mean come to Pharaoh? Go to Pharaoh. No, come, I'm going with you. You have nothing to be afraid. Thus we're now understanding how Paro has the capacity to dominate over the Jewish people. Thus we now understand how the infamous, outstanding, and outstanding, I don't mean it positive, but bottom line, it was outstanding, extraordinary, infamously, wickedly, outstanding and extraordinary. However, nevertheless, it comes from Tohu. Now, I wanted to give an example how this works. So our job is to gather together the sparks of Tohu. Thus we find our sages, our sages say, that the number, in the Kabbalah it says, the number of sparks that fell were 288. Rapach Nitzutzim. Now the Rapach Nitzutzim, it says that with Egypt, when the Jews left Egypt, went with them Erev Rav. Erev Rav simply means a multi multitude of mixtures. In Kabbalah, Rav, Resh Bet, is 202. Thus, when our sages tell us in the name of the verse that the Jews left Egypt like a pond without any fish, what it means is that they elevated and brought out all the sparks that were in Egypt. So in Egypt, there were 202 out of 288. By the way, just to understand this quicker, I'm so sorry, because this was the job of the Jewish people, Originally, the verse says they were there 430 years. We know that they weren't 430 because you just count. Count from Jacob to Moses, there isn't 430 years. We know that there was 210 years. One of the explanations is that because there were so many godly sparks there, God had worked it out that Joseph was the leader of all of Egypt and thus he was able to expedite far quicker the elevation, the refinement, the cleansing, the elevation and the transformation of the godly sparks. Thus, the Jews only had to be there 210 years. That's just a little Kabbalistic tidbit on the side. But how do you elevate a spark? Let's talk about this. So I'm just going to give a simple example. <coughs> Practical, simple example. We're taught that a lot of the sparks, the sparks fell and with it, it created great sources of pleasure and chaos. Pleasure is chaotic, <laughs> okay? Now we know that a lot of these sparks fall into food, right? Remember I told you the food chain, according to Kabbalah, is because the sparks of tohu are in the animal, the plant, so forth and so on. What happens now? 
When you go ahead and you buy a kosher piece of meat, the meat was slaughtered right, it was made with a bracha, and we, we, we fulfilled the mitzvah of taking out the fats and the parts that a Jew is not allowed to eat. And we fulfilled the mitzvah of salting it and soaking it to take out the blood. And by the table, we go ahead and we invite guests to join with us. And when they join with us, we also say words of Torah, we make a blessing, giving gratitude and acknowledging who really is the provider. And then by the table, we talk words of Torah and words of, words of love. And with the energy we get from the food, we then go on to do studying Torah and acts of goodness and kindness. Basically, we turned every cell of that animal that became us into a object of a mitzvah. Thus, the problem with the evil is that it's opaque. What we just did with this piece of food was make everything transparent. God's presence and dominance was carried through from the way we painlessly slaughtered the animal to the way we prepared it, to the way we ate it, invited blessings and the energy we did with the food and its nutrients that fed us. Thus the Talmud talks about how many mitzvahs can you make out of an animal. From the outer skin you can make a Sefer Torah, from the inner skin you can make the mezuzahs, and from, it goes through all the things. And from the horns you can make a chauffeur. Because what's happening is, by doing this, you're freeing the spark, you're cleansing the spark from the egocentric intense passion of chaos of self, and you're making it transparent where it's all about serving God. By doing this, we elevate the sparks. That is, by the way, with kosher food. Non-kosher food, what we're being told is that this is the type of clipper which is 100% opaque and thus there's nothing we can do to get to the spark. Thus, if you go ahead and you slaughter a pig and you take out the blood and you remove the fats and you make a big Shabbos table out of it and you invite poor people and you make a bracha shahakol near bidvari and you sing a nigin and you say divrei Torah, the pig ain't going anywhere because it's not within our reach. No. How do we help the sparks that fell into the non-kosher? By breaking it. How do we break it? Very simple. Right? You're starving and you're walking down the street and there's a Burger King. You can actually get a double Decker burger with fries, with a soda for $6.99 and they're all humongous. And next door is the kosher store where you get nebuch it's a little thing and it costs you $29.99 and the door opens up and you have this whiff of Burger King and you really want to and you say Hashem this one's for you I'm not doing it today today I don't know if my whole life I'm going to stay kosher today for you I'm going to go into the kosher store believe it or not by doing that you actually reached into Burger King into that burger and help the godly spark within it. Because you used it to serve God. Not used it by engaging, but using it by overcoming. Now you understand what the ten plagues were about. Pharaoh wasn't a kosher clipper, and thus Pharaoh had to be broken. Thus when he starts off his conversation with Moses, who is God that I should listen to him? And he ends up saying, you are right, and God is right, I am wrong, and my people are wrong. That's what we call the breaking of the clipper, the opaque, the 100% opaqueness, which denied the existence of God. That's how deep the spark fell, and all of a sudden now it's changing. So while we understand now how Pharaoh had dominance over the Jewish people, just like we understand why Jacob was petrified of Asa when Asa was coming to get him. But nevertheless, by cleansing his heart of any animosity to Asa, he broke the clipper and Asa hugged him. By the Jewish people holding on to mere three things, 
The three things they held on to. They didn't have circumcisions. Only tribal Levi had circumcisions. So really, the level of how they were assimilated, but were taught they didn't change their language, they didn't change their clothing, and they didn't change their names. And what that means was, they remained different. We are different. The fact that they did that through all their suffering and persecution, they reached into Pharaoh and they broke it. Together with that came the ten plagues and broke the outer shell which needed God himself. And thus we find the, uh, the um, sorcerers telling him by the third plague, this is the finger of God. You keep on hearing that words. Breaking what the tohu spark fell into and got stuck in. So it's causing chaos because it's an infinite spark. But it's causing chaos and intensity in absolute evil. Our job, the job of Tikkun is to make a mensch out of it. To break it. What happens when we break it? Thank you so much. What happens when we break it? What happens when we break it is that we actually are freeing the spark, returning the spark back to where it belongs. But let's continue further. We also now understand the power. Let's look at the verse that Isaac said. So I already shared with you that Tohu, Esau was Tohu, Jacob was Tikkun, and thus Jake Isaac favored Esau because he saw the unbelievable infinite light power within him. Jacob steals the blessing because Rebecca realizes we've got to do this right. And then Esau walks in and starts crying. Don't you have a blessing for me? Listen to the words. This comes from Genesis. And it will be when you grieve that you will break his yoke. His is Jacob. You will break his yoke off your neck. Rashi explains what does it mean and it will be when you grieve. It is an expression of pain as in I will lament in my speech. When the Israelites will transgress the Torah and you will have cause to grieve about the blessings that he took. Hey, if you're not doing the Torah, what right did you have to steal my blessings? That's when you will break his yoke. Thus, we now see that even though Jacob got the blessing, and even though Rebecca was right, it's all about Tikkun. Nevertheless, we see clearly that as long as we're holding on to the Torah, the minute we forsake the Torah, Esau has a right to cry out, hey, 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 I'm Tohu, I'm bigger than you. Why are you, why are your yoke on me? And thus Isaac says, you'll be able to break the yoke then. So now we understand how exile takes place. What we still don't understand is how exactly did it happen that not only when the Jews were misbehaving for whatever reason, whatever happened in Egypt, that they were, the Egyptians were able to power over them, that we understand now, because Isaac said that to you. You're Tohu. So if he's not behaving, you get to break off his yoke and then you're the more powerful one. You're Tohu. They're only Tikkun. But one second, after the, all the plagues, after everything happened, the Jewish people were good boys. They're going to Mount Sinai. Remember what God told Moses already at the burning bush. In order that you bring them to this mountain so that I can give them the Torah. Okay, Pharaoh, back off. How did Pharaoh have a power to push them out in goodness? That's not what Isaac told Esau. Isaac didn't tell Esau, don't worry, you'll help them do what they're supposed to. That's not what Isaac said. When Tohu has fallen, Tohu is not here to help us. So what's going on? To understand this, we need to understand another dimension of Tohu. Okay? And this is the positive experience that Tohu, that Tikkun gives Tohu, that, that Tohu gives Tikkun. So we just spoke about the story of Esau and Pharaoh, that when the Jewish people break their relationship with God, Tohu has a power to oppress and persecute Tikkun. But I want to talk about a different thing. Not when Tohu persecutes Tikkun, but when Tohu empowers Tikkun. Let's talk about this for a moment, okay? Let's talk about... <coughs> Tikkun means orderly. What does orderly mean? Orderly means rational, logical, boundaries. That's what Tikkun means. Not to have boundaries is Tohu. To have boundaries is Tikkun. These boundaries are even in serving God. For example, I quote you the Talmud 
on Kisubas, page 50, side A. It's in the end of page 3. It was ordained at Usha. Usha was a place where they learned that if a man wishes to spend liberally, he should not spend more than a fifth. So it was also taught, if a man desires to spend liberally, he should not spend more than a fifth, since by spending more, he might himself come to be in need of the help of, the, of people. So from that reasoning that you have, that if he gives too much, he's going to end up need, we see that we're talking about not spending in uh, Saks Fifth Avenue. We're talking about charity. You shouldn't give charity more than a fifth. If you give more than a fifth of what you have, you're going to end up then needing. So what's the Chachmah? Right? That means Tikkun says, Hey, 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 don't go crazy. Yeah, I understand. You want to build a shul and make millions. Yeah, it's all good. But And then what's going to happen then? The whole the shul is going to need to support you. That's not what the point is. Be a mensch. Right? Here's an interesting thing. I want to share with you what it says about this. It then goes on to say that even though Tikkun has this, but there's another law that says about giving charity, for example, that when do you say you can't give more than a fifth if you didn't sin? However, if you're sinned, then you're spiritually in mortal danger. So giving charity, it says, tzedakah tatzal mimavit. Charity saves you from death. So giving charity is just like paying a doctor bill. Would you ever tell a doctor, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> the Torah tells me I can't spend more than a fifth and this surgery is more than a fifth of what I own, so I'm afraid I'm just not able to have the surgery. The verse says, all that you have, you give bad nefesh. Nefesh means life. According to Kabbalah, what does nefesh really mean? Nefesh means soul. That means that you're giving all your money, a person should, should do whatever it takes, not just to save his body from mortal danger, but to save his soul from mortal danger. That means that now all of a sudden you're telling the Mr. Tikkun, Hey Tikkun, you danced with Tohu. You fell into a sin. Don't now start talking to me Tikkun. Well now we're dealing with medical bills. We're talking about rushing you into a surgery to save your life. And the creature of Tikkun is petrified. What does that mean? What do you mean I shouldn't be orderly? What do you mean I shouldn't be logical and rational? What do you mean you're going to drive me to an insane passion? By the way, I know someone in the shul, you know him, a lawyer, who told me he absolutely never, never drank alcohol because it is completely against his psyche to not be in control. It was not about being a good boy or not being a good boy. It was about he is truly tickled. Logic is, is all that, that he lives and breathes. If this be the case, we have a little problem here. Because the tikkun creature is being asked to go beyond the tikkun relationship with God. Now let's go back to what he's doing for him. Okay? So let's understand how this works. As long as Pharaoh fell into infamous extraordinary, there's nothing he can do for us besides make trouble. Thus our job is to first refine Pharaoh, cleanse Pharaoh, break the arrogance, elevate and transform the sparks. Once Pharaoh is free from the Tohu's imprisonment within being notoriously extraordinary rather than divinely extraordinary, now comes Pharaoh and empowers the Jewish people to have unprecedented relationships with God. Because once passion is cleansed from the arrogance and egocentric, self-destroying, then passion becomes the most beautiful thing that you can have. Passion becomes more divine than how you were before you became passionate. So you're starting off life with your parents teaching you always mind over matter. Think, think before you do. Start with the impulses. Think. How many times did I hear that? Think before you do. Think before you speak. That's what Tikkun is being taught. But as you go on in life, the ultimate experience is 
not to remain within the conditional relationships and boundaries of logic and, and rationale, but rather you're being asked to leave Egypt and go into the desert. This is impossible for the Jews before Tohu empowers Tikkun. Thus there comes a point where Esau hugs and kisses Jacob. Thus there comes a time where Uparoi Hikriv Espenei Yisrael. Pharaoh brings the Jewish people closer to God beyond their own comfort zone of capacity. Now we can understand why Pharaoh, not only when, the, when there was the evil Pharaoh, that he was here to oppress the Jews, but later when he was refined, he was here to save and push the Jews into a deeper relationship. Now let's talk about what's going on here. So Egypt, by definition, in Hebrew means Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim comes from the word Mitzorim. Mitzorim means straits and constraints. Now, there's the evil straits and, cons and constraints where the, the evil is not allowing the Jew to learn Torah, not allowing the Jew to keep Shabbos, not allowing the Jew to do what they're supposed to do, right? We had it over and over through history. We had it with the Romans, we had it always, that was the story. So that is when the constraints is evil constraints. However, we also was talking tonight about holy constraints. Holy constraints means that I have a conditional relationship in which I don't spend more than a fifth and where I don't do things that are crazy. It's all wonderful to do mitzvahs, but let's not go crazy here. This is already uh, not normal uh, terms. Hey, calm down. So that means that there's the rationale and the logic of tikkun, which in itself is a holy Egypt. Egypt in the sense of constraints and boundaries and conditional relationship. It needs to make sense. Thus, look what happened to the Jews. Once the Egypt was broken by the plagues and the miracles, where did the Jews live in Egypt? They lived in Goshen. Goshen was the nicest place. On a spiritual level, it was a place where they could serve God with peace of mind and with goodness. Thus they said, Moses, why leave now? Why would we go into a desert which is defined as scorpions, snakes, not civilization, not sown. Well, how can we serve God there? There's going to be so much stress. Now is the best time to open up a yeshivas again in Egypt. Now that Egypt is no more oppressors, now that we made a mensch out of them, why would we leave? Why go into the desert? And yet, for whatever reason, the Jews would have to go into the desert to get the Torah but they're frightened of the desert because the desert is a tohu environment it's not civilized it's not rational it's not worked out you can't grow agriculture there there's danger there and if there's danger there physically that's a reflection of danger there spiritually you see that the Jews have to have mana and you see the Jews have to have the clouds of glory protect them Thus the Tikkun Jew says, you got to be kidding. We're not leaving Egypt. We're going to serve God right here. We're going to open up beautiful shuls. We're going to open up beautiful yeshivas. We're going to have kosher bakeries and restaurants. And Yep, the first kosher Chinese restaurant in Egypt. That's what they wanted. And thus what happens here is that Pharaoh, who now is polished tohu, not notorious and infamous tohu, He's now giving the Jews what they don't have on their own. Pharaoh is hikriv. He's now telling the Jews, you cleaned me up. Now let me give you what I have that you don't have. For Tohu is more powerful, passionate, infinite, chaotic in a good way in its relationship to God. Thus, let's go out there and make this happen. Now you understand a whole new insight to why Pharaoh was the one who had dominance over the Jews, not just when the Jews were in his exile, but when the Jews took the fish out of the pond, when the Jews elevated the sparks of Tohu. Now you understand why 
then the reward for the Jews is that they can now have an unbridled, passionate, intense, infinite relationship with God that they could never have on their own orderly boundaries and sanity. Okay. I want to just uh, close this up. Let's move forward. By the way, what happens when the Jews went into the desert? So I just want to read you the verse of Jeremiah. It says like this. It says, So said God, I remember to you the loving kindness of your youth, the love of your nuptials. You followed me in the desert in a land not sown. You see what it's saying here? God said, you followed me into the irrational with faith. Thus you acted unconditionally and you now eternally have my unconditional love. <coughs> That's tohu, not tikkun. So I want to just tell you interesting, and let's do this quickly because it's already getting late. I want to share with you quickly that what's the first story that happens after the Jews finish with Egypt? The Jews were at the sea, the sea of Reeds, split the sea, and the Egyptians die. The Jewish people sing with Moses, the men sing with Moses, the women take their tambourines and sing with Miriam. What is the next thing you read in the Torah? Right? Hollywood would have to say, and they walked off in the sunset and lived happily after ever. Not Jews. We don't do that. Let me tell you what they did. Let me read it to you. The Jews, they came to Marah, but they could not drink water from Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Marah means bitter. You know that from your Passover Seder. The people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to God, and God instructed him concerning a piece of wood which he cast into the water, and the water became sweet. First thing after everything is beautiful, there's trouble on the horizon. The Jews are already having discomfort. Instead of asking Moses, please pray for us and help us, they come quetching to him, and God provides. What does God do? Gives him a piece of wood, and the piece of wood you throw into the water, and the water becomes sweet. What is this piece of wood? Which piece of wood was it? So, that's where your handout comes along. There's different opinions of what this piece of wood was. Okay? Let me just quickly read you the Medrash. The Medrash offers several opinions as to the nature of the wood utilized by Moses to provoke such a response. Rabbi Yahshua said that it was willow. Rabbi Nathan said it was a type of bitter ivy. Rabbi Leza Hamodai surmised that it was an olive tree. Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha hypothesized that it was a thistle bush. To all opinions, the consensus seems to be that the wood was bitter. We're going to follow one of the famous opinions that's taken, and that is Rabbi Nathan, and says it's the Hardufni. Go to the top of the page, please. First of all, you'll see a link there to Wikipedia, exactly what it is. It's called Virgin Ivy. Virgin Ivy happens to be A, bitter, B, poisonous. Thus, what are we seeing here? That God is using bitter to sweeten bitter. Why? So there's three types of lights. There's the light of Tikkun, finite. There's the light that Tikkun experiences when it's challenged by darkness. What happens is that when you're challenged, you have to dig deeper into yourself, find your hidden faculties, find your infinite powers. If you want to know what I'm talking about, just look at a fragile woman who's faced with her child being in mortal danger, and you're going to find hidden faculties. So the hidden faculties within Tikkun, when it's challenged by darkness, is stronger than the regular light of Tikkun, and that light can overpower the darkness and win the day. The ultimate light is not when Tikkun reaches into itself and finds a greater light. The greatest light is when Tikkun reaches into Tohu. The light that comes from darkness is greater than any light which exists within light. And thus Kabbalah and Hasidis very often give you a salad recipe. And it says like this, when you roast or you fry a radish salad in honey, the radish becomes sweeter than the honey itself. What that means in Kabbalah is that there's the left side, the emanation of strictness from which comes justice and retribution. There's the emanation from the right side, which is kindness. You should know that when you transform strictness, 
you then have a greater kindness than kindness itself. And thus what God is telling Moses, if you want to have the ultimate sweetness of the water, don't use sweetness to sweeten bitter. Rather, use fire to fight fire. Transform the bitterness, not overwhelm and overcome the bitterness. Just, just like with Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was the one who gave Jews power that they never had on their own. So too, it's the bitter stick, the poisonous stick, that made the water drinkable and sweeter than sweet. That's it for the lecture. Now let's wrap it up in closing. Okay? In closing, when we get faced and pushed by evil. Well, let us now return to our opening modern day issue. When we get faced by, pushed by, and dominated by evil, what is God really telling us? What does God really want from us? A. God is challenging us to dig deeper within ourselves in order to overcome the onslaught of darkness. God is using Pharaoh, Tohu Pharaoh, to help us connect with our hidden faculties which embody a higher infinite light. That's the first thing we're expecting. Come on, dig deeper, overcome temptation. But then that's not enough. Then God is pushing us to connect with and to experience the highest light of all. This is the light that comes from within the darkness as the darkness is transformed into light. Because if darkness is the fallen sparks of Tohu, when you crack that and you elevate that and you transform it, the light of Tohu is far greater than any light of Tikkun. I would like to suggest that there is one caveat in play here. And this is that we have faith even in our deepest moments of darkness that God is with us that God is compassionately taking us through a birthing canal which leads to unprecedented, unconditional love and goodness. So when Hashem is putting us to face darkness, A, dig deeper into ourselves, B, then turn around and take from the darkness a greater light than you could ever have. Thank you.